So good morning once again. So back to Ephesians. Here we are again, uh, which we have out, uh, we've, we've introduced as Paul's letter giving us the calling and conduct of the church, the body of Christ. He's going to call it later the body of Christ. Paul had founded the church. God had founded the church, but through Paul at Ephesus, and he had a loving relationship with the people there. And in the opening of this letter, Paul has deviated from what he often does in the beginning of his letters by not, des- not directly addressing the people immediately. He doesn't actually really do that until verse 15, where he gets down to where I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all saints. So instead, after an opening greeting, Paul breaks into what we've called a eulogy or a praise to God in verses 3 through verses 14. And he dedicated his first words in in this letter, really, to the praise and commendation of God. He's really talking about these spiritual blessings. They come from God, what they are. Um, They're for for his praise and his glory. The summary of these is given in verse 3, right? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, colon. And then after the colon is what uh, gives us the, the, the details of what fills in those spiritual blessings. And so we understand all spiritual blessings to mean that we have all that we need to live successful spiritual lives in the eyes of God, um, and then that has been provided to us by him. And last week we focused on just who was it that Paul was writing to. Who are these people that have spiritual blessings? Who are Christians or the called, the chosen, the saved? We had lots of names for them. But they're God's uh, people in this day who have accepted Christ by faith and who have trusted him. And then we talked a little bit about what a Christian then does through baptism, through the Lord's Supper, through church membership, through those things um, are aspects of the Christian life. But that's who he's talking to. Now, uh, we have broken up the verses 4 through 14 into three separate chunks. We did four verses 4 through 6 a couple weeks ago where we talked about uh, really the spiritual blessings most closely related to God the Father. Uh, this involved giving us a new destination in our lives. He has predestinated us. It involves our adoption. So we're not only the born-again children of God, but we have rights, full access. We are heirs or co-heirs with his son, Jesus Christ. And it's really a glorious way of his showing his favor to us in the, 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 word, the words that are said in, these, in this chapter that were accepted in the beloved. And then uh, after that, verses 7 through 12, we talk more about the, the details of the spiritual blessings from Jesus Christ. or most, They most directly flow through him. We were under the bondage of sin, and Christ redeems us and forgives us of that sin. But he went beyond that by renewing our minds, and he gave us the ability to understand spiritual things and such that we can live with a spiritual savvy. Uh, we also learned about a mystery, right? Um, we talked about the, the, the mystery of his will in verse 9. And talked about this dispensation of the fullness of times in verse 10, where that Jesus will rule and reign for a thousand years with everything in heaven and everything on earth being subjected to him. And then 
we looked ahead to an inheritance, right? Um, and we have, uh, we have obtained an inheritance through him, which the Apostle Peter describes as uh, incorruptible and undefiled, something that awaits us. And we know that this involves a lot of things, but new glorified bodies, uh, heavenly home, uh, the scripture fills, fills in those details, but those are just some things. Our living with our uh, God and Savior for, e- for eternity, <laughs> not a small deal. And so today, we move to verses 13 and 14, where, we, where the focus shifts one more time to the final member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, and the spiritual blessings that we have in him. So we'll read those again. Verse 13, in whom he also trusted after that he heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. So before we detail the Holy Spirit this morning, we're going to recall the goal Um, And I'm going to begin with the very ending words of that two-verse section. Unto the praise of his glory. The phrase praise of his glory or praise of the glory of his grace is found three times, right, in this little eulogy. One after each section. One after the Father section. One after the Son section. One after the Holy Spirit section. Now praise is found 35 times in the New Testament. But this particular construction is only found in this letter, and thus only found in this little eulogy or praise to God. And so we need to understand and remember this phrase as it is key throughout the paragraph. It is ultimately the why of our spiritual blessings that God has given us as his children. If we know him as our Heavenly Father today, and those blessings have been given to us, then the reason for them is praise of his glory. God is worthy of praise and desires praise from his children. And recognizing God for who he is and praising him is a central theme of scripture. This is not just something Paul came up with. Uh, We believe Paul to have been led by the Holy Spirit. We think all of the scriptural writers are led by the Holy Spirit when they write scripture such that these are truly the words of God, even though they have flavor, different flavors for different individuals. Um, Peter's writing sounds different than Paul, sounds different than James, sounds different than John. But this idea of the design of God is consistent in Scripture. 1 Peter 2.9 But ye, he's talking to Christians, are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. It's not just for Christians today that the praise of God is the reason for our calling. Deuteronomy chapter 10 and verse 21 talks about the Israelites. He is thy praise, and he is thy God, which hath done for thee these great and terrible things which thine eyes have seen. I'm thinking of crossing of the Red Sea and the plagues upon Pharaoh and the Egyptians. God is thy praise. We spoke of David a little bit ago um, in relation to Jesse, his father, in uh, the Old Testament. He praised God frequently in the Psalms. Psalm 717, I will praise the Lord according to his righteousness, and I will sing praise unto the name of the Lord Most High. 
Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. That's Psalm 107, verse 21. So David gave praise. Uh, um, <clears throat> we're seeing it in the book of Deuteronomy. With that, so those are first five books of the Bible, we believe, are written by Moses. And so multiple different people giving praise. The Old Testament prophets gave him praise. Isaiah 25, 1. O Lord, thou art my God, I will exalt thee. I will praise thy name, for thou hast done wonderful things. Thy counsels of old are faithfulness and truth. So it's Isaiah. How about Jeremiah? Jeremiah 20 and verse 13. Sing unto the Lord, praise ye the Lord, for he hath delivered the soul of the poor from the hand of evildoers. So, and Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. He's the prophet that kind of laments over the Jews being brought, sent into exile, to sent into bondage, um, and he's still praising the Lord. Daniel, another Old Testament prophet, chapter 2 and verse 23. I thank thee and praise thee, O thou God of my fathers, who has given me wisdom and might, and have made known unto me now what we desired of thee, for thou hast made known unto us the king's matter. So, he thanks and praises God when he's able to interpret a dream. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, not, of course, our, our scope today, but uh, he's praising God for things God has done for him. We did speak about it recently uh, here that the angels give God praise, and perhaps most notably when they announce the coming of his son to the shepherds in Luke chapter 2. In verse 13, suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God. And saying, glory to God, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Well, God deserves our praise. But is that what man does? Well, back in the Old Testament, the children of Israel were told to praise God. And what did they do? Well, in the days of the judges, in Judges chapter 17 and verse 6, it says, In those days there was no king in Israel. So there was a time in which... Israel had no king. There was their king should have been, it was, God. So there was a time before uh, that, before they had kings, and we call the day of the judges, um, and even before that they didn't, didn't really have, I mean, there was Moses, there was a, a personal leader frequently, but God was ultimately their king. So what does it say in the book of Judges? In those days there was no king in Israel, but every man, did they praise God? No. But every man did that which was right in his own eyes. How about the Pharisees in the New Testament? The religious leaders of the Jews. John chapter 12 and verse 43. For they, the Pharisees, love the praise of men more than the praise of God. Now that's looking more towards them than their praise to God. But clearly, if you're looking for man's praise for yourself, you're probably not too worried about praising God. God's word then teach, also teaches us by that mind of praising him that we should look beyond ourselves to find true wisdom. Proverbs twelve fifteen, The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but he that hearkeneth unto counsel is wise. It's sometimes good to get help. It's sometimes good to get instruction, counsel. That type of wisdom teaches us that praise is fitting for God. Psalm 147.1 begins, Praise ye the Lord, for it is good to sing praises unto our God. For it is pleasant, and praise is comely 
So, right, it's fit for him. It is the right thing to do. It fits him. So thus, as we move through the end of this eulogy in verses 13 and 14, remember that it is here to describe how God has blessed us, not that we can sit back and simply enjoy all these wonderful blessings, but that we praise him for it, and then we use them. So that's the remembering the goal. Remembering the goal is his praise. Now, let's talk a little bit about the fact that we have a personal salvation if we have trusted Christ today. In verse 13, in whom also ye are in whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. So the first thing I want us to see in the verse is the description of the gospel. Or the, the, what I want to see is that the, that the description of the gospel, salvation, belief, and trust is personal. You have a personal salvation. That is what, so if you are saved today, it is a personal thing. If you have placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation today, you have not done it as part of a group. You have not done it because you are a part of a group. You have not done it because you are part of a Christian family. You're not saved because you are in church. You're not saved because you were baptized in the past. This verse spells out your salvation in a personal manner that is orderly. There is an order to it. Remember that Paul had just told us about Jesus Christ and his role in securing our spiritual blessings. That was verses 7 through 12. But how did it start? What does this say? In whom ye also trusted after that ye heard the word of truth. So the first thing you did was you heard the word of truth. You heard the word of God. The Bible indicates that hearing the word is essential to our faith. If you didn't ever hear anything about the Bible, you don't have the ingredients you need to be saved. The Bible indicates the hearing of the word is essential to our faith. Without the Bible, there is no way you will know about Jesus and his work. Romans ten seventeen, Paul tells us, So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. So you hear the word, and that can, doesn't always, not everybody that hears the word of God gets saved, but hearing it can lead to faith. It is essential. You didn't come to a knowledge of Christ by a dream or a vision. The Bible does not support that in the New Testament. You did not come to a saving knowledge of Christ through a philosopher or by staring into the heavens and thinking about your existence. You had to hear the word of God. The word of God is his revelation, his revealing of something to man, which without it, we wouldn't know it. So how did you hear it? Well, while there there are a lot of ways that we can be instructed in the word, It is frequently accomplished through the public proclamation of the word known as preaching. That's actually the broader context that we just said, faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God in Romans 10. A few more verses in Romans 10, verses 13 and 14 says, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Okay, we talked, I think we used that verse last week. You call upon the name of the Lord, you will be saved. How then shall they call upon him in whom they have not believed? So you have to believe in the Lord to call on him. And how shall they believe on him whom they have not heard? So if you haven't heard about him, you're not going to believe in him. And if you're not going to believe in him, you're not going to call on him. And how can they hear without a preacher? And so he doesn't say that God 
had to use that method, but he has chosen to use that method to teach people the word. So after hearing the word, back to Ephesians 1, verse 13, in whom you trusted, after that ye heard the word, it says, it tells us that you believed it, right? That you trusted, in whom ye also trust or as trusted, after that ye heard the word. You didn't throw it out as superstition. You didn't throw it out as silliness. You recognized the word of God for what it is, the words of life. In John chapter 6 and verse 67, Jesus says to his disciples, after a bunch of other people that had been following him, left him. He asks them, will you also go away? Then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. So recognizing the word of God for what it is was critical to the disciples. It was also um, exactly how it was received by the church at Thessalonica. There are two um, books in our letters in our New Testament, First and Second Thessalonians, written by Paul. And so one of them, he kind of uh, uh, recognizes that. And in First Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 12, he wants them that ye would walk worthy of God who hath called you unto his kingdom and glory. For this cause also we thank, uh, thank we God without ceasing. So he is thanking, he is thanking God on, on, because of something he's seeing them, in them. Because when ye receive the word of God, which ye heard of us, so Paul, like we talked about himself and Timothy, brought the word of God to them. So they, heard, they heard it from him. So when ye received the word of God, which ye heard of us, ye received it not as the words of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. So they didn't just say, well, that was nice. That's an interesting philosophy. We're going to move on. They listened to him and believed it as the word of God. And there's an important thing to that because it says the word of God is which, which effectually worketh in also in you. So the word of God does the work. It doesn't some great, you know, preacher that does it. There's no, there's nothing about the preacher, any preacher that helps the word of God do its job other than, he, other than presenting it. It is what has the power, right? Uh, Paul says in Romans 1, I'm not ashamed of the, the gospel for it is the power of God unto salvation. The gospel itself is the power of God. Paul wasn't the power of God unto salvation. He was saved, but he wasn't the reason people got saved. God's word was. And recall that if you believe and trust in this word, it is because of a work of God in your heart. 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the preaching of the cross is to them which perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. So the word is either the power of God and someone who, who is transformed or some that reject it, they will see it as foolishness. But it's all a personal thing. This wasn't a group thing. You heard it. If you have called on Christ, you've trusted it. You believed in it. And that's why in verse 13, back in our text, it can say, it is the gospel of your salvation, right? In whom all ye, ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. So we cannot ride the coattails of somebody else into the kingdom of heaven. We have to own it ourselves. 
That doesn't mean that we earned it. There are religions that would tell us that we need to earn our way to heaven. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. We'll see that uh, not of works, lest any man should boast. We'll see that in Ephesians chapter 2. Actually, you're right there. Ephesians chapter 2 and verses 8 and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. You don't earn a gift. Not of works. Why? Because if we could work for it, we would boast about it. My salvation's better than yours because I worked for it. So we learn in Ephesians 1.13 that we have a personal salvation. But we learn something else in verse 13, that we have a secured salvation. In whom also, after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. So when someone calls on Christ, when someone asks Christ to save them, repents of sin, calls on him, what happens? Well, let's talk a little bit about the Holy Spirit. So we're going to do a little bit of an introduction to the Holy Spirit this morning. Not a full treatment of the Holy Spirit. We could spend weeks talking about who the Holy Spirit is, um, but it's necessary here because uh, he is introduced to us. But I think it would be good that we remind, that be reminded of some things about the Holy Spirit. We learn some things about the Holy Spirit before we move forward. Well, first, we believe God to be a trinity. Uh, the real basics. Uh, God of the trinity. 1 John 5, 7. For there are three that bear record in heaven. The Father, the Word, and this Holy Ghost. And these three are one. So, that, so there's three in one there. The Holy Ghost, the Father, and the Word. The word is something that is used in John's writing to describe Jesus Christ. Uh, The beginning of the Gospel of John opens, and the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. And then later on, in that first chapter, it says the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we, that's John, beheld his glory. Even the glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So, so it's the Father, the Son, and the Spirit is all I'm saying in that 1 John 5, 7 reference. There are three that are one. We believe then that the Holy Spirit is a member of the Godhead, co-equal with the Father and Son. We believe the Holy Spirit to be a person. That doesn't mean the Holy Spirit is a human. It doesn't mean they're man. But it means that the Holy Spirit has, a tra- has traits of personality. The Holy Spirit has mind. The, the Holy Spirit has will. And the Holy Spirit has emotion. Those things are exhibited in Scripture by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is eternal. The Holy Spirit didn't have a beginning. Jesus Christ also, as the second person of Godhead, he did not have a beginning. But he had a beginning in terms of his incarnation, in terms of becoming man. That happened, obviously, once, and there was a beginning. But as a member of the Godhead, he is eternal. So, where do we see the Spirit of God first? Well, we see him in Genesis 1-2, right at the second verse of the Bible. Right? In, the, in verse 1, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. Verse 2, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. So, he's involved in creation. He's also involved in the creation of mankind. That's later in in, uh, Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27. And God said, so God, and God said, let us make man in our image. 
So God's a plural, right? Let us make man in our image. God, us. God, our. So there's more than one, but they're one. After our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. Now the Holy Spirit has been, is eternal and and. And it is, and he is spoken of in the Old Testament, but the ministry of the Holy Spirit becomes much more active or much more apparent, I guess, uh, much more written about in the New Testament. As Jesus Christ is preparing for his crucifixion and departure from his earthly ministry, he promises the disciples that they're not going to be left alone. He's like, well, it's, you've had this one with you that's performing miracles. He's saying he's the son of God and he's doing these wonderful things. John says, right, you're the one with the words of life. But he's, he keeps talking about the fact he's going to get crucified and leave. But he wants to let them know that he's not going to leave them without any comfort, without any help. And so in John chapter 14, he tells them in verse 15, If ye love me, keep my commandments. And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but ye know him, for he dwelleth with you, and shall be in you. I will not leave you comfortless, I will come to you. Um, And you'll see this sometimes in your Bibles, uh, typically in the King James, sometimes it depends on the publisher a little bit, Um, shouldn't really, because of the translation, but when the Spirit is uh, given a capital S, it's, 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 referring to the Holy Spirit. You'll frequently see the word spirit not capitalized, and that would mean maybe the spirit that's in us, the spirit of man. Um, And once in a while, you're not sure. You're not sure if it's the spirit of God or the spirit of man, and so there's disagreements on what's what's what. But uh, in John chapter 14, he is promising the spirit, capital S, spirit of truth, which is the Holy Spirit. So it will comfort the disciples when he leaves. It will also teach them. He says in John chapter 14 and verse 26, but the comforter, you say, is that the Holy Ghost? Is that the Holy Spirit? Well, John clears it up. But the comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. And that doesn't mean that once you are saved, you suddenly have an awesome memory. Because if so, I'm in trouble. Because <laughs> now I've got a perfect memory. Um, it means that spiritual things will be brought back to your mind. You, will rem- you, you can remember things from a spiritual perspective that you wouldn't have had before the Holy Spirit's ministry in your life. So in this current day, the day of the church, we know that the Holy Spirit is crucial to our salvation. Um, in fact, the Bible says that the Holy Spirit helps set us apart unto God and is one of the key ingredients to helping us understand the word. How do we... How do we you know, how do you hear this the first time and say, I think that's right. I think you say, I think this is true. I think I, I believe this. You're getting the help of the Holy Spirit. First Peter chapter one and verse one, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God, the father through the sanctification of the spirit 
unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace unto you and peace be multiplied. And so the key there is elect. So you're chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. How does he work it out? Through the sanctification of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. Through being set apart by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit does a work in you that... that um, and the details of all aspects of, of what happens when you are born again, or another word is regeneration, um, isn't really our focus today. But he allows us to understand the word of truth in a spiritual way. So we see another, uh, back in our text this morning now, in verse 13, we're introduced to another element of the Holy Spirit's ministry. It says that ye were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Sfragizo, nice word in the Greek, means to seal, to close up, to make fast with a seal signet. Um, so sealing a letter, uh, it's to set a mark, a seal upon something. Where's another place that we can get an idea of what it means to be sealed? So you're sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. What does that mean? I'm going to read a little section about... Um, right after Christ's death, where this word is used in Matthew chapter 27, verse 63. They're they're talking to uh, Pilate after the death of Christ about what they're going to do with the body. And they said, saying, Sir, we remember that that deceiver, they're talking of Jesus, said, While he was yet alive, after three days I will rise again. Command, therefore, that the sepulcher be made sure until the third day lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say unto the people he is risen from the dead. So the last error shall be worse than the first. Pilate said unto them, Ye have your watch. Go your way. Make it as sure as ye can. So they went and they made the sepulcher sure, sealing the stone and setting a watch. So we see a seal. So the seal to the stone, making it sure, to be made sure. That's all the same idea. They're... So in this case, it's a seal being put on the tomb of Christ. They put seals on envelopes, right? If you, so that's one type of a seal. So there's the seal that holds something secure and shut. There's also the seal like the seal that you'd get from a notary, right? A seal that would tell you the document is valid. It attests to the validity of something. And I think that's maybe the, the better fit for what the Holy Spirit does in our lives Although both are really true. So when you play, if you, if and when you place your faith and trust in Christ alone for salvation, the Holy Spirit comes and takes up residence within you. Peter says it sanctifies you or sets you apart. You are different now. You have been marked out as God's. In verse 14 here, in our, back in our text, it will say, you will be called as purchased possession. Something we'll look at, look at, look at shortly. The Holy Spirit taking up residence within you is the, author, or the authenticity mark showing that you are God's. It separates you from unbelievers. It separates you from those who profess to be Christian but haven't submitted to Christ as Lord. So today we may see a sticker that says made in the USA. And for some items that might give us confidence that the item is of a particular quality or perhaps that it can be trusted. The Holy Spirit within us is the sticker that says born again of God. But my sticker analogy is crazily way too far short. Because the Holy Spirit is not just the mark. 
It's the enabler. It would be as if the Made in the USA sticker actually gave the item the ability to work in a particular way. Now, we don't have time to focus on this today, but when it comes to our actions and having them being pleasing to God, the one responsible for doing that or makes it possible for us to do that is the Holy Spirit within us. So given that this seal has been given to us by God, it is perfect, permanent, and irrevocable. It cannot be taken away. And we call that the doctrine of, the, of eternal security or the perseverance of the saints. That you will not lose someone that who is born again will never lose their salvation. And it calls us to look forward, which is our promise in verse 13, which we'll do now as we turn to verse 14, where we learn that our salvation is secure with a down payment. Ephesians 1.14, which is the earnest of our inheritance. So in addition to being called our seal, the Holy Spirit is called our earnest of our inheritance. And so I believe you all would understand the concept of earnest money, putting money down on a house or another item to show that you are serious about going through with purchasing it. It costs you something. To walk away from your earnest money deposit would hurt you. God gave us something valuable at Salvation, In fact, infinitely valuable. A divine being resident within us. This concept of the Holy Spirit being both our seal and our earnest or down payment is consistent with Paul's writing elsewhere and can be found in a parallel passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 21 where he says, Now he which establisheth us with you is Christ and hath anointed us is God who hath sealed us and given us the earnest of the Spirit in our hearts. So he sealed and gave us the earnest. And it says it's not just earnest, it's earnest of our inheritance. So it's wise to think of the Holy Spirit as the initial installment on our eventual heavenly possession. And as we've talked about in previous weeks, there is a heavenly inheritance that awaits us as born-again, adopted children of God. A commentator on Ephesians, Harold Honer, said, Because we have been adopted into God's family with all its privileges, we have an inheritance from God. This inheritance qualifies believers to live eternally in heaven in the presence of God. We have a little bit of heaven in us, namely the Holy Spirit's presence and a guarantee of a lot more to come in the future. And so that's for people who are born again. Sometimes culture, uh, probably less so today, they would say that each person has a spark of divinity in them. That's not true. But each Christian has an indwelling Holy Spirit. So there is a mark of divinity in them. So if the down payment or earnest money of our inheritance is the third member of the Godhead resident in you, how can you even imagine what the full inheritance would look like? It's God in you. How amazing to think that in, ad- in addition to the redemption and forgiveness that Christ made possible in verses 7 through 12 in our text, God would actually give us this much, that he would give us anything We are sinners. We are unworthy of his grace and love. 
unworthy of his redemption. But amazingly, we are a part of his eternal plan with a heavenly destination and inheritance because of the fullness of his love and grace. So moving to the end of our, our net, or continuing verse 14, it says our, uh, our next heading is, our, your salvation is secured for God's redemption, right? Which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. We are purchased possessions. We are bought with a price. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 20 makes it very clear. For ye are bought with a price. <laughs> Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. That's an example of the word spirit being used that isn't Holy Spirit. Thinking back to the opening of so many of Paul's letters or other letters in the New Testament, this is why the authors call themselves slaves. And first, the word will be translated frequently in the King James Bible as servant. The Greek word is doulos, which is the word we get doula from, a slave or a servant of a child-expecting mother today, but it is a slave. Um, in the uh, in the Greek language, um, although slavery in that time was a lot different than slavery we can think of in our own country's past, it was a very different relationship. But it says we are purchased; we are the purchased possession. So we live under, as Christians, we would live under the authority of Jesus Christ, our new Master and Lord. And that's the part of salvation that gets lost in the world today. The part about we are under a new master. So the hymns, there is a hymn that would say, do you want to be free from the burden of sin? That sounds pretty good. Definitely. I don't like burdens. Of course I do. Or how about, would you like to go to heaven someday? Yeah, sounds great. Um... But you could ask the question a bit differently. Are you willing to kneel before Jesus Christ, call him your Lord and Master, and serve him daily? That question may step on our pride. You mean it's going to cost me something? Well, salvation is free in that you can accept it as a gift, right? We don't pay for a gift. But something's going to change in your life. While salvation opens up a tremendous inheritance and freedom, it comes with a cost. Not a cost to pay for it, but a cost to you for receiving it. As you, as, you, your, uh, as you turn your love, your desires, and your service to Christ, the changed affections may end friendships, may turn you away from activities you used to enjoy. It is not unreasonable as you've been bought with a tremendous price, the price of Christ's shed blood on the cross of Calvary. And this isn't um, God saying, well, you've just had too much fun. Now it's time for no more joy. Um, The Bible is clear is that the ultimate and supreme joy comes from knowing him. Paul would tell us later in his letters, rejoice evermore. Right? Um, He... Having joy in the Lord is indeed the supreme joy. 
This is, it's because it's joy that doesn't end. It's not a joy in an item that fails. It's not a joy in a relationship that can falter or eventually someone passes away and that relationship ends. It is a joy in something eternal. This verse is clear that God is coming to redeem us. He is coming to set us, his purchased possession, free. On the cross of Calvary, Christ paid our debt, freeing us from the penalty of our sin. So there's joy in that. There is a burden lifted, right? The the hymn says burdens are lifted at Calvary. That's what the whole beginning of the book Pilgrim's Progress is about, that Pilgrim has the, the burden on his back, that he wants to be rid of. Christ sets us free of that burden of sin. And today we've learned about the Holy Spirit of promise, his ministry of indwelling believers and enabling them to live lives that are not under the bondage of sin. Shows us that God has also freed us not only from uh, the, the penalty of sin with his son, but also the power of sin in our lives. We don't have to obey it as our master. That's what we've learned about in our Roman study. You have two masters. There's either the sin is the master or God or Jesus Christ is the master. Which will you serve? There's only two. But we do still have sin in our lives, even as even if we are born again Christians. Paul, in his letter to the Romans, indicates that this sin that remains in our lives causes us to groan in expectation of the future. Later, uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 21. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God, for we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption, to wit, the redemption of our body. So there's a couple things going on there. One is that the creation's groaning. The creation is groaning. But we ourselves also, whether it be from physical troubles to sin, are groaning and awaiting for that redemption where we are ultimately set free. That verse also says we have what's called the first fruits of the Spirit. That's the down payment. But we await redemption. And that's what is being discussed here in verse 14 in our text. When God makes the final redemption of his purchased possession, he will finally free us not only from the penalty of sin and the power of sin, but now the very presence of sin. And then it will be sin free. So today... Make the most of the fact that you have the initial installment of this redemption if you are born again today, and that is the Holy Spirit. So let us return to where we began. The reason that this has been done is that we would praise God and give him glory. These wonderful truths should bring us the desire to praise God. Hallelujah. (laughs) What a Savior. That that is what would be purchased for us. We are a, pur- we are a purchased possession, but that, that we would be given the wonder of having a Holy Spirit resident within us. He deserves all the praise. He deserves all the glory. He deserves my all. Should I not want to tell everyone about this glorious redemption that God in Christ has made me a partaker of if I know him as my Savior and Lord?
So a couple of applications to end with this morning. Are you a purchased possession of God through Christ? We looked about the order. Have you heard the gospel, believed the gospel, trusted the gospel, and humbled yourself before Jesus Christ, repenting from sin and claiming him as your Lord and Savior? And if not, I would invite you to do that right now. Do it today. Have the earnest given to you today. Be given divine enablement today. Bring God more glory in what he has done today. Do not delay. Secondly, you have been marked out as a Christian by God as his. He's marked you out. You have been given divine enablement by the Holy Spirit to live a life pleasing to him. And so what does that mean about how you approach him or how you approach each day? Just how are you going to approach the day knowing that that's what God has done in your life? That's your purpose. That's what you've been enabled to do. And thirdly, never diminish what God has done in your life if you are his child. It would argue that you don't start your prayers begging for things. You start your prayers by lifting up his name. Uh, We'd call it... um, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Hallowed, to raise up, to to praise, to exalt. Hallow his name and proclaim how great it is. And may it humble us daily as you let him increase. We should take joy in knowing God and seeing him working in your life. Because ultimately our satisfaction should be in God and God alone. You will never be disappointed if you do. Because he is never disappointing. And so let's close in prayer.